Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Please consider supporting Black Women United, YEG, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. They are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United, YEG, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. Creative control, creative control Comedy, art, and sometimes rock and roll Let's do a public opinion poll Raise your hand if you love creative control Cause when Vish is unleashed, well you... Oh, sorry, I didn't see you there I was just working on a tribute song to my favorite podcast, Creative Control, with Vish Khanna. My name is Matthias, and I play in a band called The Burning Hell, but more importantly, I support Creative Control on Patreon, and I think you should too. Quality long-form arts journalism is like a magical talking unicorn. It definitely exists, but it can be really hard to find. Fortunately for us, Vish makes it easy with hundreds of funny, thought-provoking, well-researched and engaging interviews with artists from all over the world. Your flexible monthly donation on Patreon will get you plenty of special exclusive treats and help Vish keep his podcast well-fed and cared for properly, the way a magical unicorn deserves. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. Well, I'm getting close. And now it's time for another special feature. Don Pyle is a gifted and prolific musician, recording engineer, producer, photographer, and composer based in his longtime home of Toronto, Ontario. A member of notable bands like Crash Kills 5, Fifth Column, Phonocomb, King Cobb Steely, Greek Buck, and Long Branch, among others, Pyle is likely most recognizable for his work as a drummer and composer in Shadowy Man on a Shadowy Planet, released wonderful records and scored the Kids in the Hall's original and recently relaunched sketch comedy TV series. 
A huge part of Pyle's dynamic expression is photography, which he's been practicing since high school, and led him to capturing nascent punk and LGBTQ plus happenings in Toronto and around the world since the 1970s. His 2011 book, Trouble in the Camera Club, a photographic narrative of Toronto's punk history, 1976 to 1980, is an essential volume featuring beautiful live shots and portraits of iconic artists like David Bowie, Ramones, Teenage Head, Patti Smith, The Vile Tones, The Clash, Iggy Pop, The Diodes, and many, many others. Pyle's latest book is a more intimate, introspective collection of photos, but it's no less powerful. It's called Shot in a Mirror. It's available now via Midnight Mass Press, and it prompted Don and I to have a talk about things like our dearly departed friend and colleague Dallas Good, the status of shadowy men on a shadowy planet, and the new music they made together for the uh, recent uh, Kids in the Hall series, why he began documenting his experiences, friends, and heroes in the first place, and how he views his role as a photographer now, how time and circumstances can alter the emotional quality of a portrait, how technology has impacted art making, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 744 of Creative Control featuring the lovely and talented Don Pyle with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Don. How's it going? It's going great. The clouds are out. It's a beautiful, cloudy day, you know? <laughs> you you appreciate the cloudiness. Most people say, oh, it's a beautiful sunny day. You like the cloudiness. I, I like any weather. I, I'm down with any weather. There's no such thing as bad weather to me. Yes, uh, I, I can appreciate that. I appreciate the uh, weather report. Where in the world are you today? I'm uh, at my home in Toronto. Toronto. How is yes. Toronto uh, uh, going to be for you today, as it were? We have this appointment. <laughs> I know you got these plans. Anything else coming up? Oh, my God. Today is Beverly Breckenridge's birthday oh so uh, that's that's my my other date for today is to uh to call her later i mean i don't know if she's one of those people that cares about her age being broadcast but it's a big one. <laughs> oh, it's a big one okay well for the people listening who is beverly exactly and where in the world is she she's out in seattle she lives in seattle and beverly is someone one of my closest dearest friends who i played with in the band Fifth Column and who was also the bass player in the band Phonocomb, mm-hmm. the band that I had with uh, Reed Diamond and Dallas Good after Shadowy Men, you know, kind of did our thing splitting for the first time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, good. Happy birthday, Beverly. I, I, I'm familiar with Beverly, but I know some people might not be. So uh, a, a momentous day for you in Toronto. Uh, yep. How are things, you know, this is... As people hear this, it'll be the first episode of the new year, 2023. I think this has been a very, it's been another year again. It's been a terrible year on many fronts, 
uh, almost every front. I'm trying to be positive, but uh, how is the year for you, if you can summarize it? Well, when I think about the end of the year, you know, and start thinking about that, like, sort of idea of, fuck, man, 2022 sucked, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I think about that idea and think that, have I been saying this every year? Like, every year? Cause there's inevitably something kind of awful that happens every year that kind of takes precedence in your, your mind. And, you know, this year definitely had a lot of shitty stuff. And the biggest of which was the, uh, the passing of our friend Dallas Good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, with that, I don't know. I kind of feel like at this point I've had so many close people that I know die and I'm at an age where, you know, it happens more and more frequently. I mean, just look at this week. You know, we're in the age now of sort of celebrity where, you know, the biggest celebrities started, I think, kind of really sort of happening in the sixties and seventies. And so, so, you know, just massive waves one after the other of, you know, every day there's somebody passing away, you know, people that I don't know, like we talked about earlier, Vivian Westwood, yeah, you know, yeah. but people who obviously had an influence on some kind of cultural thing that was um, significant to me. But Dallas dying this year was one of those situations that's actually created this, um, I don't know, is dichotomy the, the right word, where I um, caused me to quit my job (laughs) and kind of changed some things in my life that were making me unhappy. And it's had the unfortunate side effect of, or maybe fortunate side effect of appreciating uh, the world more and being alive more and um, all the things around us, you know, the, uh, the war in Ukraine, you know, just like helps. It's awful, but it makes me appreciate just like birds and trees and mm. you know that we don't have bombers or uh you know torpedoes landing on us i feel so grateful for for the peace in where we live and um for our, our relative safety and for a lot of things that i think are beautiful in the world yeah. and uh i remember this happened after my mother died i remember like like literally like the day she died like walking out of the hospital and, uh, you know, after being with her when she died and just having this really, really weird sort of sensation, sort of out of body experience of like, you know, it was like first thing in the morning, like five or 6 a.m. And, uh, you know, things were sort of quiet and sort of still. And you walk outside and it's like, this feels so weird because the world is entirely changed, but everything kind of looks and feels the same it's 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 different and i certainly had that with dallas where it's kind of like it's hard to make sense of the world you know yeah. um because there there are just so many uh different kind of intense feelings going along with it on on both ends of the spectrum you know and t- incredible sadness and then you know kind of eventually this kind of like awe in the world and uh, <laughs> Things like, you know, have a, a pet cat or children, you know, things that, that, that are sometimes whatever, irritating, you know, <laughs> things, things that I, <laughs> I, I look at now and I, I, they, they, uh, change my perception of, of the world, you know? Yeah. I don't want to be too hallmark cardy about it, but, um, it is true that, uh, when you, lose someone as monumental uh, as Dallas uh, that uh, in your 
commiserating with others and appreciation of the person that has been lost, you can grow to appreciate your own life more and, and, and our lives together more. Um, I think the pandemic has done that for some people too. And, and recognize, absolutely recognizing privilege and recognizing, uh, those of us who are fortunate to, I don't know, work remotely or, 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 or function remotely as much as we can, um, or, or, even have access to information that some people don't, to be honest. Uh, yeah. So I think that's, that's a, that's a good perspective on it. I, I, I appreciate that you took this horrible tragedy and have tried to make, uh, something. You found gratitude in it. You found appreciation. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't even like I tried to make it just like, it, it just happens. And it's just, I don't know, maybe it's just a kind of like an organic reaction to that, you know, kind of trauma of a loved one dying that, you know, your brain needs to ping pong somehow back to another state. You know, you can't just walk around crying all the time. Yeah, but quitting your job, I mean, that's something I've, uh, you know, to actually quit your job, that's a scary thing to do, but um, that's a part of a reevaluation, right? I mean, that's part of like, what do we, yeah. what are we doing with our lives? What, what, what and yeah. in your case, as we'll get into today, what have I been, what have I been doing with my life? What have I done? What have I captured? I suppose, uh, in your case in particular, uh, I, I just want to, I don't know if this helps you, but you're not alone in these feelings, these philosophical existential sort of, what the hell, what are we doing? Uh, how, and how can we make this better? Uh, have you found that, that you're not alone in this? Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I, another sort of unfortunate side effect, or I keep saying unfortunate, but it's actually a great side effect of Dallas's passing is becoming closer with Amanda, his yeah. wife. And uh, we've talked about that exact thing a couple of times where she's having – you know, same feelings where it's just like the intensity of, uh, you know, your emotional responses is amplified in all directions. So, you know, definitely a lot of people are feeling that way. And I think it's maybe just, you know, kind of one of those common sort of ordinary later in life things yeah. because everybody experiences, you know, yeah. loved ones dying if you live long enough. Yeah. As a fan of artists and, and creative people, um, I think when they when they pass away, as a fan of their work, I suppose you can't help but mourn the loss of the future work. Uh, yeah. In our case, in this particular case, when you get to know someone, it's it's a different sensation. Of course, you have the personal um, engagement with someone that is really what has rocked you. But I made this realization at some point that I I, I was mourning the loss of the Sadies. At some point in the processing of this, of this tragedy. And it occurred to me, but we were also losing shadowy men on a shadowy planet again. And, um, I don't know if the Sadies have continued, uh, somehow. And I, and I've seen them and it's been remarkable, but obviously quite different. And, and I also, and in this process, did a thing to try to celebrate Dallas where I went through as much of the discography of his that I could on, on, on Instagram. And what I did was I tried to capture all the liner notes and things. Don, your name came up so many times as working with <laughs> Dallas on Sadie's stuff that I had forgotten. I, or, or like, and, and random projects actually just Don pile, Don pile. It's like, Oh my God. Yeah. So you've I, had this. I think I actually recorded the first recordings of the Sadie's. I'm, I'm pretty sure that the, the first recordings of them as a band yeah. were 
recordings that I did on eight track. Well, I just see. I, I and I don't. Maybe I don't have that. Like on the like, is that a seven inch or something? No, they didn't release it. Well, that's a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's been interesting actually in retrospect now because. Um, Andrew Scott was the uh, the drummer on those sessions. Andrew Scott from Sloan, you know, that brief period that he was in the band. Yeah. And he asked me for copies of it recently. And I listened to everything and uh, was really kind of struck by how much some of it sounded like the Satanatras. Right. Which was Dallas, the band that Dallas was in before the Sadies. Which I got to, and, I got to see that band quite a bit. I saw the Satanatras quite a bit when they played the uh, the Volcano Club in Kitchener. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I had been seeing a, a bunch of clips online after Dallas passed of, of the Satanatras, and it's just incredible seeing him as like a kid with long hair and, yeah. and really kind of like being kind of like the earliest Dallas that I knew where he was like really rocking out on stage, where he's really giving it, you know, yeah. like physically, you yeah. know? Yeah. And so when I heard these uh, original Sadie's recordings, I thought I, have a much clearer understanding now about why Dallas never wanted to use those because I think he was like trying to form a vision for what the Sadies would be. And it sounded too much like the Satanatras. Right. So that earliest stuff, like, you know, when Sean was still playing electric bass uh, and they were, you know, a lot heavier. So, you know, Sean had the same kind of flag camp bass sound of a really like grindy, you know, nasty yeah. sort of gnarly sound, not, not the soft kind of rounder, you know, body that an upright bass has. And, uh, yeah, the, it just sounded so much like the Satan Audres in places. And he was also, I think, kind of like discovering his, his voice. Uh, as a singer and you know i know that that's something that he struggled with for years and years about just like how to sing how his voice sounded and and that thing that almost every singer has of of hating their own voice and kind of like figuring out how to yeah. work with this thing that you have and and have no choice but to uh to present to the world if you're going to be the singer yeah so you, you've had this extremely long and uh you know very integral relationship with Dallas, again, it's impossible in our in your situation in particular to separate the person from the work. But at what point did, this, did that did that occur to you? Like we're not going to play again. Like Shadowy Man is not going to play again. But I, I want to say probably because you never know. But does it feel more yeah, de um, definitive now? Well. No, it's been a really sort of weird feeling because uh, you know, especially as when the Sadies start rolling along again and they're doing their thing and i kind of feel like shadowy men and career suicide to a different degree yeah. because you know they could play with or without him you know he he wasn't as integral to the band as he was in shadowy men yeah. uh but i, I kind of feel like the mistress that's like you know everybody's kind of like you know passing the sadies the kleenex and uh and shadowy men are sort of you know forgotten in there not because you know obviously not because you're bringing it up but for me you know i i just uh no one only a couple of people have approached me and kind of asked me about kind of what it means to shadowy men you know yeah. in regard to uh dallas passing and um you know all the kind of um public sort of grief thing is all sort of placed on the sadies and, um, you know, I understand it in a way because 
you know, I'm saying this totally without, um, you know, I'm not saying this is what Amanda feels or anything, but I've thought the same thing about Amanda as I have every partner that I know of someone who's kind of well known, how, you know, that person, I've experienced it a few times where a well known person that I know has died and their partner is kind of like, there's all this like, you know, outpouring of grief for the band that they were in or the comedy troupe that they were in or anything. And then the real partner, you know, the person that they were with, you know, all the time is sort of left behind. And it sort of speaks a bit to, you know, our kind of our framework of understanding about, you know, just like who we know Dallas to be yeah. or who the general public know, know Dallas to be. But it's also, you know, a little bit about kind of the weight of celebrity, you know. Well, that's, so, what, that's what I was getting at. The work is something that those who are outside of a social circle would be mourning, first of all. Oh, I really like John Prine's albums. Did not know yeah. him, but I feel sorry for all his friends and family. I assume most people have yeah. that feeling, yeah. but, but they are probably yeah. like, oh, I was, I had tickets to see him. And now I'm not going to get to see him. And it's very sad. And and I he seemed like a lovely guy. But there's a separation there. Yes, in your case, in particular with Dallas, like you just, he was one of your great friends. And you you know his partner, Amanda, very well. Or you're getting yeah. to know her even better, you were saying. So I, I hear yeah, you. Uh, you it probably may be surprising, but Brian and I haven't even talked to Brian. Brian Connolly yeah. from Shadowy Men. We haven't even talked about kind of like the future of the band. And um, in some ways, I think maybe that's because it's a given that, you know, we're over. Yeah. <laughs> and I think part of it is also that we don't really know what the answer is to that because – you know, anytime you kind of like try and rethink that picture, who else is, who else could be in that position? Yeah. And there's nobody, there's no one. Yeah. You know, Dallas was such a, a part of the family and it was so great doing it with him. Yeah. And, um, you know, I did wonder at different times because Shadowy Men with Dallas was together almost as long as Shadowy Men with Reed. Yeah. So, you know, every band comes to an end at some point And I did wonder how is, this version of Shadowy Men going to end because, you know, like we've all just grown up. Brian and I have a great relationship. You know, we have a lot of love for each other. We're social with each other. We have dinners together and it's all really good. Like I don't see any kind of like fractures here that are, you know, going to lead to us, us kind of like breaking apart. There's no kind of like interpersonal yeah. tension where we're, uh, you know, I don't know if any, any one of us, who knows? I don't know if any one of us was thinking of kind of like ending it, but, I know I wasn't. And after a certain point, it kind of felt like, yeah, it's going to, when we played a show, that there would be another show, you know, yeah. that, that, that this is not the last show as it was for the first maybe 10 shows that we played where we were like, you know, is this the last show? I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, we certainly had a lot to work around given Dallas's schedule in the Sadies, but I don't know. It's, it's part of it is, is still sort of in disbelief that, that Dallas is no longer here. Yeah. So, you know, in my mind, I think kind of logically, while Shadowy Men can now be something that just gets like, you know, put back on the shelf. And if there's ever a reason for us to want to <laughs> look at that thing again, just take it off the shelf and kind of shake the box, you know, and see what happens. Was Dallas, uh, was Dallas the impetus for 
this reconstituted version of the band? Was it you and Brian thinking like, if we could do this again, how would we do it? Or was Dallas? No, it was entirely Evan from uh, the band uh, Fist City, who was at that time working for Sled Island. He was like one of the programmers there. And, oh, right. And so right. he co-ran a record label that was originally going to be doing Shadowy Men reissues. And the first one was going to have been coming out kind of around the time that Sled Island was right. happening. Okay. And so he asked if we would play at Sled Island. And playing together again was something that neither of us had ever thought, never discussed once. Like, it was just, well, without Reed, there is no shadowy men. And it was even a struggle for the first, um, I don't know, maybe two years even, like about feeling kind of like imposters you know that we're not really shadowy men you know like that we're we're out there doing this thing but it took a couple of years for dallas's presence to take over reed's absence uh yeah so uh when uh they approached us about doing the sled island show it was kind of like huh like it was just like what it was kind of one of those questions that you can't almost even comprehend because you've never asked yourself that. And uh, so um, Dallas just happened to be coming over here uh, to my place on the day that I got that call. (laughs) And of course, the first person that I think of to play is Dallas because, you know, even though it's the bass guitar, I know that he can do everything, you know, like after we uh, recorded the first uh, thing that we did together, which was the uh, Phonocomb album with Jad Fair, he left to go on tour in Europe with Half Japanese playing bass. Right. Um, and Reed Diamond played the bass very much like a guitar, uh, like an electric guitar, like, and, you know, kind of, which is partly what created, you know, one of the elements that created the sound we have of two, almost like two lead players in a way, you know? Mm -hmm. And of course we knew Dallas first as a a fan of the band and just from having conversations with him, it was so cute because Dallas like obviously knew the records and knew them like really well because he would ask about details about them that, Hmm. you know, most people don't ask people, you know, (laughs) You know, there's a lot of kind of common questions you get, but with Dallas, every once in a while, there'd be like some kind of like very sort of deep detail question that he would ask about them. And so when we started playing with, anyway, uh, let me, I'm sort of jumping ahead. No, but, that's fine. So, so he, he came over and I said, Dallas, I got this phone call today. And what would you think about doing one show playing bass with shadowy men? And like without a second of, of hesitation, he's like, absolutely. It's like, let's do it. I'm, I'm in. Nice. Uh, so it was, uh, very immediate. And, you know, at that point, I wasn't seeing Brian a lot. I, uh, you know, we were on good terms and everything, but, you know, we were just weren't seeing each other a lot socially. And Brian and Dallas, of course, knew each other. They'd both like had a brief sort of crossover in Nico Case's band. And honestly, just being fans of each other, you yeah. know, I think they both, each of them was in awe of the other hmm. and it made them both nervous around each other, which was so cute to see, you know, like <laughs> seeing both of them get, you know, this sort of like awkward and uncomfortable. <laughs> so I was more kind of like thinking like, God, I wonder how it's going to be between 
Dallas and Brian, they, both of them are like such gentlemen. I didn't, didn't think yeah, that, yeah. you know, they were going to be at each other's eyes, you know, with their claws or anything. But uh, so when I asked Brian, he was ex- exactly the same. Just, huh? Huh? Oh, what? <laughs> and and one of the first things, you know, af- after a bunch of those, he said, well, who would even play bass? And I said, Dallas. And he said he'd never do that. I said, I already asked him. He said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it really took Brian about four months to say yes. Huh. Cause I don't know. I don't know if he just like didn't think I was serious or, uh, just needed time to kind of wrap his head around kind of like going back into, to that thing and that sort of body of work. Yeah. But, um, you know, so eventually the festival's like, you know, we have to know today. We need an answer now. So I called him again, Brian, they need to know. And he's like, really? Like, do you want to do it? I'm like, yeah, it sounds like fun. Like, you know, it sounds like yeah. there's no reason. No pressure. I, I can't think. Yeah, I can't yeah. think of anything kind of bad about it. It's like the songs are already written. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> we just have to learn how to play them all. <laughs> so this is this is 2012, right? That we're talking. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's 2012. Yeah, I, I, I will only interject to say, uh, in some sort of weird magical moment in my life, I actually got to be in Calgary, Alberta, uh, for Sud Island, uh, and I also got to see what I think ended up being the very first public performance by this new, uh, con- reconstituted shadowy man, which was uh, in front of children. At a school, oh yeah, a school, right, a school yeah. in Toronto, and then I happened to be in Calgary and got to see the Sadies were playing, Shadowy Men were playing, No Means No. It's the last time I saw No Means No. Yeah, uh, you can see behind me a poster. The only poster I rescued from Calgary is for a Hot Snakes reunion show at that oh, same yeah. Sled Island festival. That was a crazy year. It was so much. It fun. was re- remarkable. I met Lou Barlow there for the first time. Uh, and we've become friendly. It was just, and Archers of Loaf played. It was very like, uh, up my alley. Stephen Malcolmus of Pavement played. Thurston Moore was there. Come on. Anyway, it was remarkable. But you guys yep. played, uh, what, two or three shows in the, in the end in Calgary. I know you played your main show at the Legion that I attended. And just, just two shows. We played another smaller, yeah, smaller place bar. A couple of days later. That's right. Yeah. So I got to see all that. And I just wanted to, uh, as I tend to do, uh, impose myself. Uh, into the <laughs> proceedings here. I apologize, but, uh, it, I just want to, for those listening, this was a very magical thing, uh, to, to witness, to get to experience. There was a period there where I saw every single, uh, shadowy men show that I could. And then the next thing I knew, you were playing in like airport, uh, uh doing like <laughs> yeah. weird things that I couldn't get to. And I'm like, oh, I can't get to the airport for the terminal. There was some initiative where, uh, some arts council or some, who was it? Somebody asked you to play in the airport terminal, right? Well, it was one of those music festivals. I don't know if it was North by Northeast or oh, right. Canadian Music Week or whatever that asked us, contacted us and asked us to play at it and to do some, you know, big show thing, which sounded very unappealing to us because you know, all of us had been to yeah. those various things and they're, you know, just kind of assembly lines and, and, 
you know, you really, it's really easy to feel like you're just like, you know, the sushi floating by on a oh, boat, it's awful. you know, uh, I, yeah, uh, awful, yeah awful they're, they're generally hor- horrible yeah. to play. Yeah. And so we said no to it. And so they made us another offer of like some other kind of show. And <laughs> we were just like, no, like this, this doesn't sound good. Like what else do you have? What else do you have? Like, you know, give us, give us what, what's the worst show you're yeah. putting on that, that, and so they started like listing, well, I don't know, you can play in the, the lobby of here or you can play at, you know, the, uh, the garbage room at the Hilton or, uh, <laughs> or, or, or you can play at the arrivals area at Toronto airport. <laughs> and of course that just made us laugh and we're like, bingo, there's the show, you know, like let's play at the Toronto airport. Yeah. And there's, which of course was like completely. <laughs> As like stupid show as you could imagine. Cause you know, you're playing to a lot of people who are just annoyed. Yeah. They're annoyed because, you know, they've just taken a flight yeah. and they're waiting for their luggage. And then there's this loud music that is just irritating them. Yeah. And then so they come through those doors and there we are. So <laughs> it was like playing to like 999 really annoyed people <laughs> and one person who was like, what the fuck? I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> like, you know, so it was like, it was totally like we did it for that one person. Uh, yeah. And, you know, we were set up like right across from uh, a Tim Hortons. So that was our audience for most of the thing. The security people came and watched us and the people who were forced to wait in line at Tim Hortons were forced to watch us as well. I believe there's, <laughs> I believe there's footage of this. Yeah. Yeah. Someone came out from the city and filmed it. It's like the most depressing live band footage you've ever seen. <laughs> well, it's amusing to me. I'm so glad it exists. Yeah, it's, it's amusing to me as a fan. Cause I, I assume you're just, I know the band has a good sense of humor. So I, I assume you did that with that sense of fun. Um, and yeah, just so the magical parts were, were many and I got to see a bunch of shows. Uh, Dallas would play Reed's bass. Um, yep. so the whole thing had a really nice, uh, familial, uh, vibe to it. And, and that's what I got. And like I say, in, in, in doing these kinds of, uh, exercises and trying to commemorate and, and pay tribute to Dallas. Yeah. Don, I just, we have a tendency maybe not to appreciate things as they're happening. I just did not remember how intricate a role you played in the Sadies and, and, and in Dallas's life generally. So for what it's worth, I just want to, uh, I didn't expect us to spend this much time talking about this, but I, uh, it's uh, something I'm still dealing with and I didn't know him as well as you did. Um, so I just wanted to share. I, I, I hope other people find this helpful just to hear stories and uh and for what it's worth i i think of you all the time as well uh and i think of a man no thank you and it was i i think yeah i i saw the sadies three times in edmonton uh recent somewhat recently a couple months ago and it was amazing but it was very hard and uh and it was very difficult so uh and uh for what it's worth I, i it did occur to me very quickly that I think I even said it somewhere publicly, like this isn't just the Sadies. It's very sad that we're losing shadowy men as well. Um, and yet here I am talking about having just seen the Sadies. So whatever you do, I know it'll be an honor now of it, whatever you do or don't do. I mean, as a band, shadowy men, 
you honor Dallas and Reed potentially if you if you go forth, I assume. Yeah, you know, of course my biggest regret is that we never got to make an album together when we were so close to that. We were you know, really really close to having enough songs to to actually go in the studio because it takes a lot a lot of songs to make an album when the songs are a minute and yeah. a half each, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, you did some work on the Kids in the Hall uh the Amazon yeah. Prime, the Prime series, right? That that was we heard some new music. Yeah, that, and, and that was yeah. and that was fantastic. Yeah. You know, that was like the only time that we got to go into a real studio. We went into uh Blue Rodeo Studio, the woodshed and recorded everything there and it was also kind of in sort of the later part of the lockdown periods of the pandemic that we began on that. So we hadn't played together in a long time, like I don't know, close to two years because of various lockdowns and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Sadies were recording their album kind of not remotely, but, um, you know, piecemeal, yeah. like one, one or two members at a time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's just something that, you know, we didn't want to, couldn't do. And also we just didn't have enough songs to, to be going into recording a new album. But, um, our getting back together in person was uh, to work on the kids in the hall. So like the first kind of sessions for that when we were rehearsing were, I wouldn't say a challenge, but they were in that, that time where we're all, you know, masked up and kind of like sort of nervous about like still so much unknown stuff about, you know, is it okay for us to be in this room here with us? Yeah. And none of the, none of the rehearsal spaces were open. So, uh, you know, we were lucky to find a place to even rehearse and just working out those pieces of music. Cause I think we did something like 60 pieces of music for it, just short things, but you 60, know, where each wow. of us wrote, where each of us wrote 20 things. And even that was, it was a lot of fun, <laughs> but it was also, uh, so cute. Like, you know, when I said like about Dallas and Brian, Brian being fans of each other. So, you know, it's not my favorite way to work is to give other people a finished demo of, you know, here's drums, here's bass, here's guitar, learn it. But uh, just it was necessary given kind of like the parameters of the pandemic and and just the nature of this kind of writing. You know, it's like, let's jam together and come up with a 10-second piece. You know, it was yeah. just like, it just made sense for each of us to come up with 20 pieces of music. And of course, I know Dallas can do that. You know, he's done Ron Man, you know, film scoring stuff. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, it's like... He knows how to write a 10 second song. <laughs> so that's, that's the extent to which you wrote together. Is that what you're saying? Or did you have things prepared well, no, for so a that, potential record? So, so we, uh, well, I'll, I'll just finish that part though. There'll be, uh, so yeah. Brian and I, you know, each sent out a whole bunch of pieces and then Dallas is like kind of dragging his heels on stuff and you know, Brian and I are both like Dallas, you know, get it together. You, you know, we need these things. Just get them done. And so Dallas sends out like 20 bass lines, sends us these recordings of 20 bass lines, just do, 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 do. And we're, and I was like, Oh fuck, man. This is like, he's left us like all this work. We're basically, it's like, you know, write the rest of the song. It's like, we've just written 20 pieces each, you know, it's like, it would have been. Anyway, wait. wait so, was, so you and, was, when you and Brian created your twenty demos or whatever, or, or were you were they fully realized? Guitar, bass, drums. Yeah. So Dallas just sent 
<laughs> Isolated bass 20, lines? 20 bass parts. <laughs> did, did he misunderstand the assignment or? <laughs> no, no. So Brian, thankfully, Brian just uh, had, you know, the smarts to re- respond in the correct way, which was, where's the rest of the song? <laughs> and then Dallas immediately phoned me. And he didn't do it because he had so much anxiety sure. about writing guitar parts for Brian. Dal- and so, yeah. like, Dallas is a very like- reverent person. Like Dallas, uh, I think of as a very, uh, and respectful, extremely like, absolutely. He was like, absolutely. A, he was a punk and he was, uh, single minded. And I think, uh, those who worked in bands with him would probably say that he had, if he had a vision, like that was kind of it probably, uh, for the most part. I mean, He's a, a great collaborator, but I think he definitely had a vision for things. But when he respected you and was reverent, uh, he would be deferential, I guess is where yeah. I'm coming from. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I had to say to him, like, Dallas, I don't even know how to play guitar. And I wrote all these guitar parts for Brian. So just fucking do it. <laughs> <laughs> and he did it. <laughs> Don, you don't know how to play guitar. How did you write guitar parts for Brian? On keyboard. Oh, you, oh, I see. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, so that's pretty magical in itself. Does that, you feel like maybe that would, that foretold how you might work together if you were to make a record together, a full album? No, because we actually had, there was one song that we were learning that, that Dallas brought to us fully formed, like just like a guitar though. It was like just guitar. He had something he'd written on guitar. And, uh, He sent the recording, sent an MP3 of it to each of us, and I listened to it, and I was kind of like, I, I, I'm having a hard time making sense of this. Oh. Like, I can't even tell where the beat is. Oh. And is this a stop here? Is, or does it keep going? Or, or like, what's happening? <laughs> and it was just kind of like moving, moving, moving. <laughs> and so I couldn't feel like if there was any, any chorus, any verse. So Brian responded by saying, okay, I'm playing bass on this because I can't make sense of it either. Oh. And so you play guitar on it. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so that was the first response. And then three days later, Brian sends out this MP3 and, you know, emailed it to us and said, I put this through the desadiizer <laughs> trademark. <laughs> and this is what came out the other end. And it was like, oh. He's taken all of the ideas from this song <laughs> and kind of like made a structure. Ah. And so, you know, we learned Brian's interpretation <laughs> of Dallas's mind. You know? <laughs> That's... And it was perfect because it was like, okay, now this sounds like us, right. you know, because, you know, Brian's been able to interpret something eventually, which, you know, is like so Brian. It's like to receive something, this makes no sense. I can't do anything with this. But that being such a challenge to Brian that for the next four days, he probably did nothing but, but, you know, <laughs> analyze that thing and figure out, okay, if I do this here and cut that off here and wrap this part in a bow, then, you know, something good will come out the other side. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Brian's not the first person who's had to desadiize something. Desadiize. To make sense of it. Very complicated band in its own way. So these things that you're describing, are they, were they phone, like, what state of the demos? Uh, what I'm getting at, obviously, maybe Don is, are these things that you're talking about? Are they in any sort of state where we might hear them? Uh, the general public? No, no. It's like it's like 
on our phones. It's Basically, all on your phones. Just like iPhone. Okay. Yeah, just like recorded on our phones. And so, you know, just like for reference, yeah. we, we okay. would remember. You know, yeah, it's just like never thought about anybody in the band dying, especially Dallas, you know, that, yeah. that things would, would suddenly end in that way. Well, yeah, it's it's easy to feel like you have all the time in the world, and it was kind of like time had to be f- flexible with Shadowy Men. It's like yeah. you just cannot be uh, hoping for any t- kind of timeline for anything to happen because we're all at the mercy of the Sadie schedule, basically. Yeah. Um, and you know, we had jobs and stuff too. The other two of us had jobs, so you know, we didn't have the same kind of daytime freedom that you know Dallas might yeah. have. Well, again, for what it's worth, uh, for me, um, my, uh, condolences to you and, and, and to Brian and, and to all who knew Dallas very, very well. It's, uh, uh, that's the most, that's the best I can say from here in Edmonton. I, I, I hope, uh, that resonates with you. I, no, absolutely. I know that you were someone who was, you know, really close to him and the Sadies and someone who has, uh, you know, really appreciated what they've done and what, what Dallas has done. Cause it's, yeah. you know, been so, it's like so far beyond the Sadies. Like, uh, I was playing 45s last week and, uh, one of them was, uh, Toronto band Mower Queen that AL Senior yeah. was in that, in that band. And I remember them making this record and, you know, AL, I remember at the time looked like he was probably 15 years yeah. old. You know, they were, they were, really young kids. Uh, but I forgot completely that Dallas had recorded it. So, you know, I'm playing this record and just reading the credits on it. And it's like Dallas's name all over it. You know, it was just, and, you know, I don't remember, I didn't know that he was recording other people as early as that. I know that there were various things that he recorded for other people, like it's Patrick and, mm-hmm. uh, well, you know, the Jad fair album that we yeah. did, you know, he recorded that, but, uh, yeah, it just and he was doing more and more productions. Like he, you know, he went out to to Saskatchewan and did an album with the the Garys not long before uh, uh, during the pandemic, basically. Yeah, I yeah, know. I got you know, he, I got a lovely note from Al about that history uh, myself, actually, and uh, that's what I was trying to get to. And what dawned on me uh, the day the news broke is that Dallas's connections were a global concern. Like he, he really knew yep. everyone and tried to connect with everyone he could and worked with a almost probably literally a billion people. And, uh, yeah. so as you yeah. go through the kind of whatever six degrees sort of exercise, you're like, holy shit, everything kind of comes back to Dallas somehow. He's really the center. Yeah. And I meant that yeah. I didn't, you know, sometimes when you're, um, mourning someone, the hyperbole can flow. But this is a figure who I honestly think was central. Like if you if you actually do that yeah. that music family tree, you're gonna hit more people with Dallas than anyone. And that's what I was really. He was a you know he was quiet and unassuming, but he was this social convener for me and for others. Like yeah. I I have connections yeah. to people because of Dallas. I have connections to work because of Dallas. Just like his open mindedness and his warmth. The thing is, like, he seems stoic, and I think people maybe don't always see the warmth there. Um, although, uh, you know, when he smiled, it was gigantic. And yeah. Travis, they have the biggest smiles. Yeah. And uh, it was, I was just thinking about these Edmonton shows, and every time Travis came on stage, he would make eye contact with me because I was pretty close, and he would just, he had this, uh, and I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, because he would come off stage head down. 
yep. and make his way wherever. But he would look up to make eye contact with me and he had a, just a very sentimental look on his face. Um, and I'm sure I must remind him of his brother. Sorry, I don't want to make this about me, but I, I just found this. I find myself in this complicated realm because I'm a journalist, <laughs> ostensibly. Like, that's how I connected with these guys. I'm I love a fan. how you laughed after that. <laughs> I, I don't know if I am uh, sometimes. I'm a fan, and then I become friendly with people. And uh, But I'm supposed to be a journalist, but it's hard for me to be objective of something I'm a fan about. You must have yeah. this experience, and this might be one way for us to segue into the point of this conversation, <laughs> uh, which is this book. Uh, and, and also, I read... This I don't know. Does this have a title? The zine. The book is shot in a mirror. That one's reflections in a mirror. Reflections in a mirror is the interview yeah. zine-like yeah. thing, right? Okay, and we can talk about both things. But the book is shot in a mirror, and you have this interesting trajectory as well because you are someone who documented people out of love for them. Maybe not as a photojournalist. Do you consider yourself a photojournalist at all, Don? No, not at all. You know, like uh, photography was something that I was always really interested in and doing from a very young age. And, um, you know, in our home growing up, uh, college or university was not even discussed. You know, we grew up kind of poor. And for me, if I had a job at a my first job when I was 15 years old working at a pharmacy for probably, I don't know, $2 an hour or whatever, to be presented with what tuition costs at a university or taking on that amount of debt, it was unfathomable to me. Yeah. And, you know, I had no one to be an encourager or kind of like tell me how how that could be done because just to me that was an impossible thing. There's no – it's like there's no option to go to university. But photojournalism was actually what I was thinking of for a university. I see. And it was easy to talk myself out of it because of um, just, you know, the idea of, like I said, taking on that kind of debt and also just having really poor eyesight. <laughs> I oh. thought this is a real, a really bad idea for, for someone with, with poor eyesight, with poor vision to pursue because autofocus didn't exist at that time. Auto exposure did, but autofocus didn't. Um, and, uh, <laughs> so, uh, with my earliest photos, you know, my vision was always compromised in some way, either from glasses that were like so thick that they distort your vision or, or whatever. Uh, but <laughs> I have so many photos that are out of focus. I yeah. remember like, uh, you know, maybe about 10, 15 years ago, reading about this technology that could make photos in focus. And now that's come to be and it's not really in focus. It's like either AI, which is, you know, kind of blowing up the past few weeks. Yes. Or previous to that, sharpening, which is what, you know, your iPhone does, which is basically adding a shadow to the pixels to right. make them appear as though they're, as though they're, they're sharper. But, um, yeah, I did have an interest in it at one point, like being a photojournalist, but my deep interest was always music and anything that I thought of doing was always music related. So if it was photography, it was connected to music. So like all my earliest photos, of interest are all of bands, you know, they're all of, you know, people in bands, audiences at concerts, you know, that, uh, 
those things. I, I think the distinction I'm trying to make, or maybe even the connection I'm trying to make between us, um, is that I think in some realms, like if you're a hard-nosed journalist and you're covering hard news, you have to have a certain, as a photojournalist or a, a, you know, a, a print or whatever journalist, broadcast journalist, you have to have a certain objectivity in what you're covering. Yeah. I think even just to deal with the harshness of it, or if, if the news is that yeah. bad. In our case, in the arts and culture realm, yeah, I've been a music critic. I've been a, a, a I've been an arts and culture critic. I've been a someone who likes to. Inter- I I clearly like interviewing people. But when I think about all the things I make, including this podcast and other things, they are expressions of love more than anything. Uh, I'm, I'm yeah. certainly not being like, "Hey, I hate your record. Do you want to be on my show?" So <laughs> I can, you know, tell you in person I don't like it. Like this has really become. It's evolved from me writing reviews of things that I have no real connection with because they were assignments uh, to why don't I be more selective and really just cover the things that I and the people that I love. And that's where the line in our country in particular, it's such a small arts community. It gets a little blurry because over the time that I, for example, with Sadie, we started out not knowing each other at all, and then gradually you develop a bond because, oh, there's that guy again who always writes nice things about us yep. or, or says yep. nice things about us. And eventually you're backstage or you're, you just become friendly. So then you're like, am yep. I really a journalist at this point? What am I? I'm trying to present it <laughs> in a journalistic way, <laughs> like whatever I'm doing. Like I've thought about what they've made and done and try to deal with them on an objective level. But if you listen to, for example, my conversation with um, Travis Good and, and Mike Belitsky about the latest Sadie's record, I've seen them do other things with other people. And it's very serious because of the circumstance. It's it's almost all like, what's how are you doing? Yeah. What's going on? How did you deal with yeah, the, this that. loss? Yeah. But when we talked, there was like a 20 minutes of just joking around. And yeah. his... Travis's parrot, you know, just like lots of banter and trying to make it fun because we have this rapport. You have this, yeah. like, I'm looking at these photos of yours and I've admired your photography for a long, long time. This is not your first volume. And I want to get into what spurred you on to create this one, um, Shot in a Mirror. But I see love. Like, I don't see I'm capturing this moment for a job. I'm capturing this moment for because it has to run in the newspaper and I have to get it in by 3 p.m. <laughs> I'm seeing, like, I want to take these beautiful photos of people, many of whom are gone, many of whom aren't here anymore. And and I think this yep. follows our conversation about Dallas uh, a little bit, just the, the if I may, not to be heavy-handed, but the ghosts in this book are very affecting. Like, it's it's very... The people that are gone... I mean, this is going to have to have to give you some pause as someone who's documented all these people who aren't here anymore and these these cultural movements that came and went and whatnot. Anyway, my, my yeah, you know, I sorry. No, I just wanted to try to find a question in all my rambling, which is <laughs> I, I'm coming to this. This body of work you've created is what I've only come to realize about myself that I'm I'm trying to convey love. And sh- and spread the love, like try to platform uh-huh. platform people and capture yep. them, and share them with others because I think they're cool or I think they're great, and and my vibe from your work is sort of in that same vein. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something that I think has been sort of my, my sort of strength and, uh, something that I feel like I've done a lot over many years is kind of connecting people. Yes. Where I've been sort of like a, you know, a, a, a connecting point where I've either because I just want to help people out, you know, and kind of like realizing, their sort of artistic vision because a lot of things that they might be trying to do are things that I've either done or I know how to do or I've tried and I have, you know, kind of like some kind of like step beyond or it's just people that like you should know each other. You two should know each yeah. other, you know, or, you know, uh, I don't know. Right now, immediately what comes to mind is Guillermo uh, Sabaust, who was the Sadie's sound guy for years, who – I met him at the the Banff Center. I was doing a audio engineering residency there, and he was there. And the Sadie's guy, who had been working with them for many years and just seemed irreplaceable, quit. You know, just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. And uh, they were like, I don't know how we're ever going to find somebody. And I told them, I said, I met this guy from Peru at the Banff Center. He's moving to Toronto, and he's super talented. You know, I would highly recommend that you you check him out. And they did, and he ended up being on the road with them for years. Yeah. And it kind of, uh, you know, helped establish Guillermo here as yep. a, a sound person. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, out of love for sure, you know, because they're, they're, all the pictures in this book are of people who I do have uh, some kind of um, – I was going to say they're, they're all people that I have a friend relationship with, but that's not true. Like Gary Floyd or Sherry Boyle, like, you know, she's someone who I'm just like in awe of, you know, I'm a fan of hers, you know, but, you know, we happen to work together. So, uh, you know, I was in this kind of privileged position to, uh, you know, see her kind of creating. And that is something that's kind of awesome to me, seeing people creating people, particularly people who are doing things that I'm in awe of, you know. Does the notion of posterity, I assume at this point, at, at the age you're at, and uh, maybe in this kind of reflective compiling of work, notions of posterity might be coming to you? Because someone said this to me recently. You've just created such an amazing archive of audio stuff that hopefully yep. people will look at. And I was like, oh, yep. right. I hadn't, I don't really think about that. I'm just doing it, you know? Yeah. But I, I, have you, in, since you began taking photos of people, which I believe goes back to high school, does the notion of posterity or has the notion of posterity ever entered your mind? Like, this is historic. What I'm doing is capturing a moment in time and someone somewhere is going to uh, look upon this because of its historical significance, if you will. Almost never, but yeah. it has occurred to me when I've uh, consciously asked somebody to take their portrait. And, you know, I kind of have a little list in my mind now of, of people who I really want to, uh, you know, take their portrait. And it's kind of uh, partly because they're people who have been kind of in my orbit, kind of awareness for long periods of time and people that I think are just kind of like incredible, like, you know, basically culture workers, you know, like yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's mostly, you know, again, sort of music related pe people, but you know, one person I can think of is, is, uh, 
and Andy Patterson, Andrew J. Patterson, who, you know, had a band called The Government f uh, for a number of years and has written a number of books and produces video and like just someone who I think is like so talented and interesting. And to think that he's like underrecognized, it's true in some ways, but maybe not in others because he got the Governor General's Award. So, yeah. you know, he's uh, clearly recognized by his peers who nominated him for that. But I think kind of in, in the larger culture, there are all these people that are just like working away, doing interesting things always. And some people know about them. Some of them don't. And Andy Patterson, someone who uh, where I do feel that it's like, you know, Andy's, you know, kind of like, I don't know. He's got to be in his seventies now. So people I know who are <laughs> a lot younger than him have you know, died suddenly. So uh, there is sometimes a feeling of urgency of, uh, there is a very, there are a very small number of people who I think like for posterity where I, you know, want to have some great pictures of them. Yeah. You know, that's, it's, uh, which I think kind of goes back to the very beginning of my photography, which is that I'm taking these for myself, that these are f for me to have, for me to look at, you know, yeah. and the, it's, like there's nobody else interested, you know, there's maybe, you know, two other friends that are interested and we show each other our pictures and that's kind of it. But, yeah. you know, it was really only when I did my uh, first photo exhibit uh, that preceded the my Trouble in the Camera Club book that I kind of like had a sense of of these things being posterity because um, sometimes it takes consciously looking at something with that mindset to kind of like take it out of the familiarity that you're kind of used to. Cause it's so easy to look at pictures like Sadie's pictures, like, you know, just like, Oh, it's, you know, it's another picture of the Sadie's, you know, and it's, it's not even that it's, uh, you know, I'll look at a photo session that I did with them. And when I look at it, I'm not thinking so much posterity. I'm thinking, I'm analyzing, okay, which picture is better? Mike looks good here. The angles are good here. It's all, yeah. it's all sort of like, you know, kind of creative sort of technical stuff, not posterity. Like there's a photo that I uh, posted a couple places and that was used in the, you know, in memoriam of the Junos of Dallas. And of course, I would never ever think that I'm taking this photo for posterity. So it's a very weird feeling after the person has gone for it now to be this, I don't know, kind of spotlighted moment in their time that, that I made. And, um, it, it's happened with, with a bunch of people. And I did a couple of talks in regard to both the books that I did. I just did one at uh, the book launch recently. And it was something that really has struck me and that I talked about is the changing meaning of photos of people when they're no longer here. <laughs> and, um, you know, there was one photo that I, I specifically talked about um, that's in the uh, Trouble at Camera Club book of uh, Frankie Venom and Gord Lewis from Teenage Head, where that photo is in a frame in my studio. So it's like when I look up from the mixing console, that's like the photo that's on the wall. And I think that when I first printed that picture that, that Frankie was already gone, mm. but then 
you know, Gord Lewis is murdered by his own son. And so it changes completely the feeling that you, that you get back from looking at it. So that's when the thing suddenly changes from like, Oh my God, like teenage head looks so fucking cool here. And you know, what a great pose and those glasses, those sweater, you know, it's like, you know, it's just like that looks amazing to uh, kind of like a more sort of melancholy thing, you know, of, 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 you know, a uh, memorial almost, you know? Yeah. You talk about this in the new book about Wendy Coburn. Yeah. And, and that's a really, I, I don't want to sort of spoil anything per se, but I will just say that, um, in the book, Shot in a Mirror, there's this lovely portrait of... Sorry, just for context, Don, can you tell folks who Wendy was? So she was an artist, a visual artist, who did uh, sculptural work, some painting, some sort of collage work. But her kind of big work that brought a lot of attention was a video piece that she did. She also taught at OCAD-U, so many people knew her from there. Yeah. Yeah, so she was a visual artist and did this piece that I think of as being a monumental artwork because it's it's kind of beyond artwork. It's, you know, investigative journalism. It's kind of, um, you know, a bit of a, a reality check, wake-up call thing about surveillance and police yeah. surveillance and police tactics in yeah. observing and gathering information in protests particularly, you know, which yeah. is what she focused on. Is it is it okay if I actually read your yeah, yeah. caption from from the book? Okay, so what it says here: there's a lovely photo of Wendy Coburn on Ward's Island, Toronto, Ontario, 2014, and this is the caption by Dawn. I saw Wendy sitting by herself at the wedding we were both at. The blue hazy city looked flat, like a photographer's backdrop rolled down for our shoot. I asked if I could take her photo, and as soon as she said yes. She turned it around saying, no, no, let me take your photo. So this is a beautiful photograph of Wendy. And what I wanted to get to is the complimentary image that you describe in this caption is not featured in this book. It is featured actually in this other thing that I was talking about earlier, which is called Reflections in a Mirror, which is this uh, interview is a very beautiful interview you've done uh, here with uh it's Chris Callahan and uh, Matt Finner. Is that correct? Matt Finner. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so this is a this is an amazing. Um, I tend not to read interviews before I interview people because I feel <laughs> like I they're, all the surprises will be gone. But it's a remarkable interview. And between this and Trouble in the Cam, and I also uh, decided to go through uh, Trouble in the Camera Club. Well, again last night, mostly just flipping through it as I was actually watching a Clash documentary. Uh, on DVD, I decided to pop something on. I was like, oh, I'll just watch this. What the hell? And I came upon your images of the clash in that book. And also, for me, most movingly, your your photographs of the Ramones. And yeah. uh, I just want to draw upon this for a moment because I found those like, uh, I had like, the, what do they call it? I got the goosebumps, hair raising, because I know you. I know what it meant to you to be there as a basically a kid. Seeing this yep. this band and you were you saw them so many times it, it culminates with shadowy men the Ramones photo shoots that you did photo shoots is the wrong term but eventually you got to be on a bill with them in like 1987 yep. uh, with shadowy men so you're backstage with them and the intimacy of those 
is one thing, but to actually see your beautiful photographs of them on stage in their prime, very moving for me because they're all gone, the Ramones. Yeah. And, and, and I can't help but think of your emotional connection to those moments. And what I want to say there is what a lot of your colleagues and myself probably appreciate, like I mean contemporaries, and I'm younger than you, must appreciate is like you were documenting an experience that you all shared together. And that's pretty remarkable. And you've done that with famous, iconic people, and you've done it with people who were your friends and were in smaller sort of bands. And it's an incredible thing that you've done. And it's that that recognition that something you were all involved in was significant, even if no one ever saw them. You, you did it for yourself, but you realized at some point this was significant and historic. What I really want to get to in this ramble is, do you find... And I know you're the common denominator here, but do you feel like uh, Shot in a Mirror and Reflections in a Mirror uh, have to be kind of consumed together? They seem very complementary. I can't imagine one without the other because some of the outtakes and, and photos you reference in this book, Shot in a Mirror, show up in the zine, if you will. And and then yeah. when I was looking at Trouble in the, in the Camera Club, I'm like, this all feels like a body of work that is linked together because you reference... That first, that was your first book, I think, Trouble in the Camera Club. Is that fair? Yeah. yeah. And the reflections in a mirror, the line of questioning, you know, is Chris and Matt, who are the publishers of, uh, Midnight Mass Press. It's more Matt now, but, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think because of what their personal interest is, a lot of the questioning is kind of like along the lines of, uh, you know, the punk photos, which are my first book. So there's a lot of conversation kind of about, the previous book uh, yeah. until kind of like later in the, uh, the book. And, um, it's their intention with, uh, all of the books that they publish to put us a, a supplementary volume I see. with them, an interview that I don't know, would perhaps just be a little more sort of illuminating or, um, elaborating. So they are kind of companion things. And it was something that I struggled with in Trouble in the Camera Club until I kind of like found a way to write the uh, copy in that, which was to write about my experience rather yeah. than kind of like trying, trying to define, you know, who these people are or, or what they've done or anything. And so I, I didn't want to do that in Shot in a Mirror. I didn't want to define people because – um I know that from my own experience that how other people choose to define you is quite often very inaccurate from how you feel about who you are or what you're doing. And I also uh, didn't want people to be sort of bullet pointed of, yeah. you know, she did this, he did this, you know, the uh, that kind of thing. So it was hard to even write copy with them. So in an interview context, it, it actually allows me to kind of elaborate more on who the people are without – doing an essay that, you know, I, I was really just uncomfortable about doing like someone like Wendy Coburn, you know, like I, I just couldn't write an essay about that because some of the things that I'm feeling are, are conjecture. They're not yeah. necessarily true, you know, like, so I, I can, in an interview thing, I can say my opinion rather than kind of where I, I feel, in the context of the book and the copy that I write for the book, it's uh, there it is kind of more journalism, you know? I can't imagine one without the other, though. It's very striking to see Wendy's portrait of you in the same sort of pose, if you will. 
in the uh, reflection zine. Sorry, is it wrong to call it a zine? It sort of looks like a zine. No, it is. It's, it's totally a zine. A zine. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very striking, and I find it just fascinating. Because most people would put both... Fo- you, you, The caption in the book alludes to this <laughs> photograph that we never see in the book unless we read the zine. So I just yeah. find that very striking. It, it really connects these two books. And, and there's another zine you emailed me too, and I didn't even mention that one. Uh, <laughs> so there's just a lot of context here and complementary aspects that I find uh, very interesting. And Chris and Matt in particular, uh, I know Chris comes from... Uh, sort of underground punk. So I know that his interest in in the history of Toronto punk is is going to be front of mind. But he also really wants to talk to you about queer culture. And yeah. this book in particular, at least compared, uh, and I don't mean to generalize, but I think Trouble in the Camera Club, would you agree it's heavily punk oriented? Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, that's what it is. That's yeah. okay. Just making sure because I don't want to just yeah. like you're I feel like you are chronicling. You say something interesting in the in the forward here about how everyone is a little queer to you uh, in these photographs. <laughs> I think is that the, am I, I may be. Yeah, yeah. 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 And it's it's a word that I'm like quite often uncomfortable using because I, I kind of feel like it's I don't know, either overused. And I also just like labels in general, like to. Yeah to define people. But the thing I like about that word is that it, it's so broad that it, uh, it defines, uh, many things like, you know, gender, sexuality, your, your outlook, your kind of, you know, misfit nature. Uh, it, it can encompass a lot more people and point of views, yeah. points of view. So is it fair to say that that was the focus of this book on some level? I just, I don't know if that's exactly the the right way of putting it, but the the actual quote sort of yes, sort of yes, sort okay. of yes, and sort of no, because you know it's like I, you know, I don't want to say like he's gay, she's a lesbian, you know, it's, those are things that I feel like are you know, of course they're they're consequential to that person's existence, but um, you know, to a one line and a a definition, I, I don't I don't know if that's so much, but when I was assembling photos. Basically, like Matt asked me to do this book, yeah, and uh, Matt Finner, and you know, of course, I'm constantly like thinking about, do I have another book in me, and or and or you know, like, what do I do with this photograph? Or this is a great photo, I want to sh- share it with people. You know, that's that's quite often the feeling is like, you know, just like wanting to share this neat thing that I have because I'm as much of a nerd about looking at photo books, looking at, you know, music history and culture and art culture. And so, you know, the things that, that I want to put out there almost to trigger a conversation with other people who have the same interests, which is what it's done, which is, you know, kind of like what we're doing right now. (laughs) Yeah, no, these are definitely conversation starters. Let me say that. I, uh, <laughs> I, I find them. Uh, why didn't I think of that as a title? <laughs> Conversation starters. <laughs> I, I find them really fascinating. Um, they feel less, uh, I feel like when you say something's historic, it, it, it only, it only kind of lives in the past sometimes. Uh, but I feel like the, these, these images that you've captured and these people you've captured, I think part of what the beautiful, one of the most beautiful aspects of your work to me is it gives them, further resonance outside of their time and space. Um, Uh And I think that's those of us who are trying to document time and space and people and what, because I I look at my record collection and I've said this many times. I think of every album 
as a marker of time. It's like getting a little journal yep. journal entry from your favorite musician about what they were doing totally. in the year 2001 or 2002 or 1977. So these photographs, yep. they resonate with me now because they're being presented now, but I feel like they have cultural resonance. Some of the things people are going through in the past, we're going through now. Some of the isolation, alienation, the joy, the the love of community, uh, that spirit, it's all very present here. So yeah, I was uh, kind of conscious of that in in some of it, and uh, particularly in the uh, the essay that I wrote accompanying the uh, black and white photos of a few friends that are dressed up in drag, because yeah. you know it, it's uh, I, I think kind of a lot of people kind of like know you know my work as being either either a documenter of the punk scene or from having you know been in Shadowy Men. And those kinds of things. And I, I, I kind of feel like for me, you know, there's a sort of like queer history and particularly that period that I write about, which is kind of like the, the onset of, you know, HIV AIDS in kind of the world and kind of how that was impacting me that it wouldn't a lot of other people who, you know, aren't gay. Where, you know, I was a teenager coming into this world that immediately there's this thing that is, has invaded this world that, you know, kind of makes it really kind of more complicated and weighty. And I don't know, already like my entry into kind of, you know, gay world was extremely separate from my interest in music because I just like didn't know anybody who kind of crossed over into both those those things so it was uh they were very separate things yeah. so um you know it does it felt like something significant for me to write about that and it wasn't really until i did it that i was sort of aware of that and even when i did the talk at the launch you know I, the talk was received very well it was great you know people were really receptive and had a lot of emotional responses and i was emotional and everything and but i know that there were a couple of people that were like oh that was really depressing <laughs> because they're coming you know based on kind of like what ever media has chosen to write in advance of it expecting kind of like fun punk book you know yes another you know so it's uh then i hit them with the emotion and they all cried. <laughs> well, again, I mean, knowing you the way I do and knowing what your interests are and where your life has gone, I mean, I, again, there's no, there's no agenda to me to your work. It just seems like a very personal, emotional expression. Um, you know, like I said, you're not fulfilling some editor's wish. You're capturing people and things that you felt were significant to you. Personally, yeah, like that's and yeah, and there are some things that sort of come after the fact that kind of remind you that, like, oh, I'm really glad this is out there and that this kind of changes the significance of this thing. And I'm thinking specifically about a photo in uh, shot in a mirror of Patty Schmidt and Meg, her partner Meg. There was recently a, a Brave New Waves retrospective about I don't know what the anniversary of it was that almost completely eliminated Patty from the story. For those who don't, for those listening around the world, so Brave New Waves was a CBC radio program, very, very uh, innovative and influential. Probably one of the reasons I'm here today talking to you, if oh you're my listening God. to me. It's like yeah. hugely important. 
yeah. hugely important show. Like it, it was like kind of like almost like a community radio show nationally. As because- I and, and I would hear it. Was it always on late at night? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Just making sure I didn't get some weird, uh, <laughs> in Ontario, I would listen to it very late at night. It was underground music. Patty was the host. I believe she was ousted sort of unceremoniously, as I recall. Uh, well, they folded, they folded the show. Folded and the basically, show. you know, yeah. it's like, you know, the show went from like having like a staff of something like 14 or 16 yeah. to like four at the end. And yeah. Patty, Patty, who'd, who'd been a producer, ended up being the host and, you know, partly out of necessity, mostly out of necessity, you know, just like, all right, well, who's going to go behind the mic? Well, yeah. It's going to be you. Yeah. And Patty is lovely. Uh, Patty and Meg and I played on a hockey team together uh, and played hockey uh, in an arts league, <laughs> which I never thought I'd be doing in my 20s, late 20s and 30s, but I playing hockey again. And they're both fantastic hockey players uh yeah we played on the they were from the montreal team but yeah i feel like we were on the same team sometimes because I, I i didn't know meg and became very friendly with her at the time and uh anyway sorry there's this lovely portrait of uh, patty and meg you're at a, quite a distance i would i would say from them sharing like an intimate uh, moment is that a fair way of assessing it yeah yeah that was one of the hardest pictures to kind of actually decide to present publicly because it is totally a private moment. And, yeah. um, you know, we, we were out walking, we went to some music festival and, uh, walked around, listened to some music and then went to that back to their place after. And we're just sitting and talking and it just looks so nice with the light. So I <laughs> took a, a few pictures of them and, uh, yeah. So it, it, it felt like it was, you know, one of those sort of private moments. So, uh, but I kept looking at it and there were things about it that I really, really liked. Uh, you know, I, I love Patty. I love Meg. And, you know, I've known Patty to be with, I've known her for a long time. So I've known other partners that she's been with, but her and Meg have a really yeah. kind of an incredible connection. And that is really moving for me to see because, you know, yeah. I love seeing in that picture, just like the way they're looking at each other. It's, it's, it's kind of like there's love and there's caring in it, but there's also a little bit of kind of like, you know, brattiness in their, their expression as well. It's just like a hint of it, but it's kind of dimensional in a way that just made me feel really good. And so, but that's, that's a gift of yours as a documentarian. Like you saw something there and it prompted you probably even as you were doing it, you weren't sure if you should be capturing it, but you knew there was something there that was worth capturing. And uh, well, I didn't I think, think twice about capturing it then because it was a private moment. You know, it was right. like, you know, they're okay with me taking this picture for the three of us, but yeah. put it in a book. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to put you in any kind of grumpy old man position right now. Too but late. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I often think about this tweet that uh, Buck65 put out maybe 10 years ago. It was something like, uh, I never thought I would live to see the day where everyone was a photographer and a comedian, but here, <laughs> here we are. And the democratization of technology has meant more people have access to music making and art sure. creation, filmmaking, all sorts of things that... Um, some other people would, and then the technology was such that you, you could just do everything with one device, a telephone. 
Yep. I'm talking to I'm talking to you, Don. Like uh, we're talking to people <laughs> who have never heard of anything before in their <laughs> lives. It's very commonplace now for everyone to take a billion photos. Just again, not to put you in an awkward position, but what do you think about this? Like you were alluding to the iPhone and the way it sharpens things. Like I think with a little cynical edge. But what do you make of the fact that? What you have done in your body of work over, and, and that we've now seen captured over three books, some people don't even view as that special anymore because everyone does it. If that makes any sense, absolutely. Yeah, you know, and and uh, I uh, just got Patty Smith's latest book out of the library, and it's a a diary like journal that is basically a book version of her Instagram. Oh, like it's literally what it is. So I'm looking at it and like kind of like I'm having that feeling like, oh, this is just some someone's Instagram. So how is this any different from my book? You know, like right. and in some ways, some ways it isn't, you know, so but thankfully I'm old enough to, <laughs> to have a, a different appreciation of, of photography as a, uh, I don't know, kind of like delivery device of of information and emotions and feelings and, and just aesthetic pleasures, color, you know, texture, you know? And so I think that I would feel sort of more self-conscious about a book being just an Instagram feed. If it were all photos that I shot on my phone. Right. But I don't know. I think partly because the photos go back such a long way I have like a very uh, distinct sort of craftsman-like connection to some of them because I actually processed this film. I fucking carried the larger home from school for the weekend to, you know, print these photos in my mother's bathroom. I, you know, would roll my own film, you know, like uh, uh, so it was a lot of like intense kind of like process, like, you know, and – I often think about someone like Kraftwerk, like, like, God, how did they do that? It's like, you know, of course, part of why there is so, they're so great is because the technology was so limited and they did something that is kind of like beyond the technology for the time. But you hear Kraftwerk now, if you're 19 hearing Kraftwerk now, none of that means anything to you. It doesn't, you know, for the most case, for the most uh, part, you wouldn't know that but the kind of the the labor almost behind something does make me appreciate it more because i can look at something that was shot in like 1985 or 1976 and know kind of like what sort of process you know like you know just part of my analysis of an image is is kind of all the things that i said plus the technical things, but the know, work. Like, I, 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 yeah. I do this too. When I hear a, a song or a piece of music with like a billion layers of instrumentation, all I can—I I don't know if it's just because yeah. I have experience doing those things. I hear the work, and I see the yeah. work. And yeah. what we're seeing now more is we've made everything so easy that you don't have to do as much of that work. Uh, you still need the eye, and you still need to practice it. Uh, to to be a good phone photographer or a phone filmmaker or a phone recording person, I just yeah. had uh, uh, Doug Douglas McCombs on talking about how he didn't he made a solo record and he didn't know how to do it until someone a, a fellow musician John Convertino of uh, Calexico told him about an app 
Because he's like, I don't know how to record my drums, but I got this app and it works. Yeah. It's weird. It, it, I don't understand it. <laughs> uh-huh. And, uh, that's where we're at. So, so the app, the app did the drums on that record. No, no, he played the drums. He recorded the. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a some sort of thing where the app can EQ everything, so you sound like you're in a. Oh. The drums oh. sound like they're studio quality drums. It just grabs oh, whatever frequencies. Yeah. So I downloaded. I've the, listened to that album a couple of times in the past couple of weeks. So I'm. Yeah. The Douglas McCall. Yeah, album. yeah. So, which is has a very hard to pronounce title from memory, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just fascinating that even Doug has been making music since 1980, whatever, and is now just being like, oh, they've made it easier for me. Even at this point, I don't know how to use the proper stuff, but everything's getting closer and closer to being in my hand, and I can do yeah. everything from this one device. I don't know. It doesn't sound like it gives you any uh sleepless nights or anything no but- i mean what it's it's resulted in some fantastic pictures of my cat <laughs> basically it's, it's shifted you know it's kind of like the things that come out of my camera are one thing but the things that come out of my phone are fucking almost the ca- always the cat. <laughs> <laughs> right right no that makes sense well so and you know, I'm, I'm happy to see people's cat pictures all the time too yeah um you know and but it's changed totally how i see and look uh and my desire to take band pictures because it's like you know i want to take pictures of the the people i'm more interested in kind of like them off stage and kind of or getting ready to go on stage or those kinds of things rather than on stage because there are a million photos of everybody and um there are tons of great photographers but you know just like from instagram i can you can tell instantly like who's really using a camera and yeah. who is who's really putting themselves like into uh harm's way to to get some of those photos you know kind of as i was but like without thinking of it as harm's way it's yeah. like you're you know in this spot because that's where you want to be as a fan you know like that's i want to be at the edge of the stage but i definitely had some like injuries here and there from yeah trying to take a photo in some of those positions, you know, getting your, your face bashed in from your camera or someone landing on you, you know, that's jumping off the stage. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose there's some danger there too. I never even, I, I was jostled around once when I was working at a newspaper (laughs) and I had to go shoot uh, BB King and buddy guy at the Molson amphitheater. I got shoved around because I didn't know what I was quite doing, you know, and they just shoved me. I'd never been in a photo pit before, uh, 20, 22 years ago. And I, yeah, they're mean. With the photographers, the other photographers were, were yeah, like Toronto Star guy, whoever else, just shoving me around because I was from the small paper. Uh-huh. I didn't know who I was, and that's what you. I guess that's what you did. It was like being in a paparazzi thing. Yep. Anyway, yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a different time and it's a different world. And uh, but I appreciate that. Like I said, I think the the works that you have out right now continue to resonate and teach me things about the way we're living now and to appreciate them. Again, I goosebumps looking at some of these photos. So for me, it's like oh, thank you, Beach. absolutely. So uh, I'm, I want to get to kind of a what's next for you question with you. It's complicated because you have so many things that you do. Did this exercise of creating these new sort of textual books? Um, do they spur you on to think? Well, what else do I got in terms of my archives, or what else could I do uh, in terms of a uh, future volumes? Uh, I want to ask about that a little bit, but also music stuff. What's kind of coming up next for you, Don? I have sort of loosely thought about, you know, other book possibilities 
And I didn't know after Trouble in the Camera Club if I ever had another book in me. And I think partly because, you know, it was like historic stuff. And it's like it's not even necessarily that they're like the best photos. It's partly about context, you know. Yeah. And so when you get older, it's like, well, it's more than context. It's like they have to be good photos too. So I think photography books are, I don't know, sort of difficult to uh, – to produce now because, you know, I feel pretty oversaturated with almost everything, you know, yeah, too much music, too many videos, too many movies, you know, just too much of everything. So I question whether there is a need or a value in um, anything, putting out anything, but yeah. that's easy to like, you know, just paralyze you into doing nothing if you kind of feel that way. And I'm aware of like what my urges are and my urges are always to make music and something that I am also like really aware of is kind of like, you know, I'm really interested in kind of like the story. And so when I look at photos or I look at my photos or talk about them, it's like I like talking about them because there's like, you know, I kind of like I see more going on here and there's magic in in photography or videos sometimes to kind of understand more of what's going on here, the context uh, sometimes, because there are particular things that are in a photo that, um, you know, they're almost like, uh, you know, Renaissance paintings where they would deliberately, you know, paint like, you know, a star that is orange in the sky because the color and the position of that meant something. Yeah. I kind of almost deconstruct a lot of my photos after the fact to see kind of like what's what else is going on in this picture, not just visually, but kind of beyond the story. So I do think about doing a book that would be sort of like a memoir-ish kind of thing that is almost like kind of like what some of Trouble in the Camera Club and Shot in a Mirror is, and sort of based on particular photos where, because I find it, I don't know, kind of easier to frame things around that rather than kind of creating like I, who cares about what my, you know, life is? There's lots of people who've, you know, had lives, careers in music, arts, whatever. So, you know, I, but I'm a consumer of those things, you know, it's yeah. like, yeah, I want to read Kid Congo's book. You know, I'm like, you know, I want, I want to read this new Patty Smith Instagram book, you know, <laughs> uh, so I do have that drive to look in those things and others. So I think, Possibly a longer form sort of memoir sort of thing centered around like, you know, using various photos as triggers. Uh, that's one thing I want to do. Long Branch, the band that I am back playing drums in after leaving the band before the pandemic. And, you know, I was just like too busy with a job and shadowy men to play in Long Branch anymore. So I left the band and here now I, without a job and, uh, or Shadowy Men, so I'm back playing with them. We're working uh, on another album that we'll be recording pretty soon. And I've just been doing like electronic stuff on my own for so long that I, uh, I kind of at this point, you know, I feel compelled to play music. And I don't know, sometimes it might be just thinking of it out of necessity for it to be a smaller form thing that would be, be just myself. But you know, I also have more desire to, to, to play drums and I don't know. I just, I'm always wanting to 
do things and there's I never have a shortage of of things to do and it's kind of a strange time right now because I'm not really much of a believer or kind of like I don't place a lot of weight on the year ending or the year beginning or make resolutions or feel like those things are opening or closing but I uh kind of do feel a lot of things have been cleaned off my slate <laughs> in this year. Mm. It's like, okay, I got that book finished. It's like my job ended. Shadowy Men is, you know, in some kind of uh, whatever state it is. And it's like, what do I do now? So um, I am kind of feeling a lot of drive to start a lot of new things. That's great. I mean, this, that's good. I, I'm sorry for the circumstances in so many ways, but... Uh... Like we started this conversation off talking about, like sometimes these uh, deep voids, <laughs> you, you come out of them somehow and you find the light. If you, Oh, my God, I'm I'm writing a Bruce Coburn song. But you know yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, no, it's like, you know, those, those things, all those things like, you know, like heartbreak songs are corny until your your heart is broken. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. You know, and, and you know lost songs are corny until you know you're you're in the depths of it you know yeah. all those things they just you know they're like real cliches for a reason yeah they're real well they're real there's 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 reality in those cliches yeah well no this is all good to hear and i i i hope uh the year uh winds up being a great one for you and and that you get to do some of those things if people want to learn more about the, the these new books uh if you will the zines and the books and anything else you're up to um using you know their telephones <laughs> and their computers where would you like to send them <laughs> oh i don't know uh uh there isn't really any kind of like uh, don place no donpile.ca or anything like that no 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 i uh, i kind of gave up on having a website now i just have a store i just fucking have a store just to sell things uh which is more actually just to clear things out of your home uh no no tell us the store i want to know the store what's the store i have a big cartel don pile Okay. On, on big Car big cartel, which I made specifically because of uh, this new book coming out and just okay. wanting to have a forum for it. But I also, you know, I sell photos now and again. You know, people will contact me wanting particular photos, and I've never done it in a conscious way of like, okay, here are some photos that if you click on these things and give me these numbers, one will appear in the mail for you. You know, right. So, so that's new. So the big cartel, I don't know. If you just Google my name, something will come up, I'm sure. You're on Instagram. I know that at the moment. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm in, I'm Instagram and, you know, there's been a couple of other interviews here and there. Yep. Okay. So people can learn more about you there. And, uh, yeah, I urge people to get, uh, these, these two things. Sorry, Don, I ordered shot in a mirror. Was not expecting reflections in a mirror. Is it always, they all come together? Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, okay. That's you know, kind of like you know, what sort of forced the the price point because of the uh, the bookmark and the postcard. Yeah, I got the, a bunch uh, of stuff. The second second publication. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So all all them all them come with a package like that. Okay, I was I at first I'm like, oh, how special! They send Vish all these things, and then I realized <laughs> that everyone's getting them, which is great. Again, very complimentary. Okay, so people should check out these things and look out for new Long Branch music. Don, I normally go out on music. Uh, by people. I ask them if they can select songs for us to go out on. Uh, there's no new project for you in terms of music. Unless there is, is there something 
that you have uh, that I have or <laughs> or that you have that you want to send me that we can go out on right now so people get some music? Should we go out on a Shadowy Men song or something? Oh, why not? <laughs> what, uh, what, 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 when you think of that band and any of your songs, does anything come to mind? Is there anything you can think of? Um, was there something that Dallas particularly liked uh, playing, do you think? Uh, yeah, there's a song called Baba Ganoush that Dallas really liked playing because of it's got a do like lots of up and down on the bass and kind of, uh, that he uh, he really liked playing that, and uh, Egypt Texas is another song that I know that Dallas really really liked playing. And, well, one know. of them sounds more delicious than the other. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I like the I like Egypt Texas uh, as well. So why don't we go out on that? Sure. Okay. Uh, well, this is Egypt Texas by a Shadowy Man on a Shadowy Planet. Uh, Don Pyle, I love you very much. I appreciate you, you and I. I, I yeah, thank, thank you so, so much, much for, for being this. on the show and. I hope we speak yeah. again soon. Well, thanks for what you're doing too, because you know, like that interview with Mike and uh, and Travis after Dallas passed away, you know, it was really meaningful for me to hear that, and really helpful, you know, because I know that you have a personal connection with them, and you know, could talk about some of those things that that are kind of hard to talk about. But you know, like you said, you brought out the laughs too. It was great. We were trying our best to deal with a very complicated situation, but. Uh, yeah, again, uh, I, like you, I, I try to come to these things with some love in my heart. It's not just uh, filling time or I have an assignment. So uh, I appreciate the kind words and uh, I love having you on the show. This is, I think, the only other time. Well, you've been on the show before. So thank you for returning to the show. <laughs> and uh, and I hope we speak again. Yeah, we will. I'll see you on the ice, Vish. <laughs> <laughs>
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, here we are in the 10th year of Creative Control, and it means a lot to me to welcome Don Pyle kind of back to the show. I was thinking about it, and I think he was on an episode of the Long Night Talk Show. So that's like a live taping of the talk show I used to do that I would present on this podcast, and I'm pretty sure he's on that. I don't know if he's... Did we do something else? I feel like we must have. I don't remember. Did we do a Shadowy Men thing? Ah, it's been 10 years. I can't remember. All this to say, lovely to have Don Pyle back on this show, this time for the 744th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode that you've heard about and you're looking for it, or, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter and verify whether or not uh, Don Pyle has been on this show more than once, please visit vishkana.com. You can also like Creative Control on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter, still, still doing the Twitter, at vishcreative, or you can follow me directly on Twitter and on Instagram, at vishkana. Also, please visit patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this podcast. Uh, $6 American or more a month grants you access to some exclusive content, including some exclusive content with Don Pyle, now that I think about it. Uh, and also, it gets you the episodes, the regular episodes, earlier than everybody else. And uh, at that tier, if you're interested in receiving a Creative Control t-shirt, just message me on Patreon, and I'll get you one while supplies last. I think one of the ones I sent to Norway just arrived, according to the tracking notification I got. So... If you're in Norway and you're listening to this, I hope you got your t-shirt. Thank you. Speaking of thanks, thanks again to Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, for their in-kind support for Creative Control. Thanks again to Jim Guthrie for letting me use some music of his on this show all the time. You can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you so much for listening to this episode with Don Pyle, a hero and a beloved friend of mine. I hope you enjoyed this and we'll check out his new book, Shot in the Mirror. 
and all his stuff. He's always up to amazing stuff and great music, all sorts of things. Anyway, thank you again to Don, and thank you again uh, to you right now listening to this, if you're not Don, for listening to this episode and subscribing to this podcast or following it and keeping tabs on it and telling your friends all about it, spreading the word about the show. All of that is a huge, huge help. So if you if you can do those things, that would be great. And if you just want to listen, that's just fine too. I hope you're well and having a, a happy 2023 thus far. As I'm speaking to you, we're early into the year, so I don't feel bad saying Happy New Year. I will talk to you very soon. Bye for now. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.